We're nearing the end of the chapter about joyous effort. Um, we'll see how far we get today. I brought in some other notes to, to share with you about the topic. Okay, so let's begin with the visualization of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, uh, surrounded by all the other holy beings, and ourselves surrounded by the sentient beings. And with an attitude of compassion, we turn to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for refuge, for guidance, and we think that we are uh, bringing all other sentient beings along with us in doing that. And wouldn't it be wonderful indeed if all sentient beings were open to the teachings, especially his Holiness's message about love and kindness and compassion, as we saw last night. to cultivate our motivation. Take one object that you possess or that a meal or, or um, any other kind of thing that you have and spend a few minutes tracing back all the different sentient beings who were involved in producing uh, that article so that you have it. So don't just go back to, you know, the immediate person who made it, but, you know, where did they get the materials? There were other people involved who uh, transported the materials. There were other beings involved. So spend a a few minutes and thinking about this regarding one specific object you have that you use regularly, And in this way, get a feeling about how your uh, life is dependent on the efforts and therefore the kindness of other living beings.
So this kind of reflection gives us just a small glimpse into how dependent we are. If we took every single object that we have and use, it would be very difficult to uh, even finish such a reflection about the number of living beings who took part in producing it. So let it suffice to say that we are dependent on other living beings and we benefit from their efforts. And so because we benefit from their efforts, uh, we can see them as kind. They don't have to be doing whatever they do that we benefit from because they know us or they like us. Just by them doing their work, living their lives, yeah, we see that we are related to them. So having received a lot of kindness, let's see ourselves as the recipient of kindness and want to repay that. We want also to contribute because contributing to the well-being of others not only benefits them, but it brings joy in our own heart. Because we can do something that we feel good about. The most uh, expansive thing that we can do, the most worthwhile thing we can do, is to practice the path and to attain full awakening which will give us complete compassion and much more power and skill to actually be of benefit. So let's generate that long-term motivation to aim for full awakening for the benefit of all beings. So we're on verse 67. Yeah. 66 was, I love the image in 66. Thus, to complete this task, I shall venture into it, just as an elephant tormented by the midday sun plunges into a cool, refreshing lake. So with that same kind of enthusiasm, yeah, we jump into whatever kind of uh, study, reflection, social service, whatever activity we do, okay? Because we're doing it with a motivation to really contribute 
to the well-being of society, the well-being of the world. Okay, then with verse 68, um, we're going into another section that is about being diligent in deeds through uh, becoming mindful and uh, having introspective awareness. Okay, so diligence. Uh, is diligence something we like, or do we usually think of diligence as hard work? Or do we think of it, diligence, as uh, something interesting because we're committed to something and it feels good when we're able to complete it? Yeah. Think, think of, of how you relate to different words. Yeah. It's very telling. So verse 68 says, Just as an old warrior approaches the swords of an enemy upon the battlefront, so shall I avoid the weapons of the disturbing conceptions and skillfully bind this enemy. So as we've noticed before, Shantideva uses a lot of military analogies. Okay, he's speaking mostly to a group of, of monks who I don't know if they were uh, just <laughs> out of the military or maybe getting distracted by the military or what. Okay, but, um, yeah, being the old warrior, so it's, it's, a, it's somebody who's wise into the ways of combating the enemy, okay? So somebody who's wise in that way know that they've got to do two things. One is they have to avoid the enemy injuring them. And the second is they have to destroy the enemy. Okay, so there's two things, protecting themselves and also destroying the enemy. So that's the analogy. We are not warriors. We do not hate anybody. Okay, but... Uh, the analogy is that, okay, a warrior has to destroy the enemy. So when we are going about our lives, we have to, you know, as we talked last weekend and throughout this whole text, the enemy is the self-grasping ignorance and the self-centered thought, okay? So we have to be intent and focused on harming them. Yeah, stopping them, not letting them overrun us. And in addition, you know, not only protecting ourselves from them, from their weapons, but we have to destroy them. Okay? So with the, the self-centered thought, we destroy it by uh, thinking about the kindness of others, wanting to repay their kindness, and especially by thinking about the faults of self-centeredness and how it has caused us so many problems in this life and made us create so much uh, negative karma, which will ripen later on. Okay, and then in addition, we think about the benefits of cherishing others which His Holiness talks a lot about. Last night, I found it uh, very sweet when because the um, initiation was given mostly for the, for the children 
And so the kids were, were sitting in front. And, uh, you know, he was talking about the Dalai, you know, being the Dalai Lama and smiling all the time and saying to them, have you ever seen the Dalai Lama angry? Yeah. And, and, and just kind of referencing himself, not in a bragging way, but just saying, you know, I, uh, I try and cherish others more than self. And so whenever I see people, I see them as friends. I don't see them as suspicious potential enemies. And so I smile, and by smiling, I, uh, you know, my own heart is happy, and I bring joy to other people. And it's really true, the power of the smile is very powerful, you know, when you greet somebody and you smile versus when you just say hello without a smile. Yeah? And just that initial openness and friendliness uh, can be very powerful with other people, and it affects us. And I read uh, some kind of study a while back in which, I find this interesting, in which uh, if if uh, people practice smiling, yeah, they actually become happier. Uh, and I, I, that is also my personal experience. Yeah, when I smile, then my mind is automatically happier than when I am involved in, you know, ruminating about oh, this person did this and I don't like that. Okay, so it brings joy in our mind now. And then, of course, we're kinder to other people. And that has a ripple effect throughout society, through all the people that that we encounter. And then we also put very good imprints in our own mind stream. Yeah? And that ripple effect, effect, I think, is quite important. Um, you know, I think we all remember, at least I remember being a kid and you hear about the boss who, who got mad at the secretary, who went home and yelled at the kids, who kicked the dog, who, you know, chased the cat, who, yeah. And, and it's a degenerative, uh, ripple effect. Whereas I think, uh, kindness and His Holiness shows this so much by His own life. His own example in life is a ripple effect going in the other direction, really spreading joy. Yeah, and so in joyous effort, yeah, the joy is important. It's not just the effort. Yeah, because we relate to the effort also as I got to do this. No, this is joyous effort. And what makes it joyous is that we are not, our, our motivation is different than it used to be. When our motivation is just looking out for our own immediate benefit, then everything becomes effort. Yeah. Where, when our motivation is you know, one of expressing joy and connection and wanting to benefit others, 
then that's what gets amplified and extended. Yeah. So it's just a change in the mind. It's not, you know, because if you look in life, we all have different things we, that, that we're doing. We may like some of them, or we may not like others of them, but we've got to do them. So we have a choice. We can either do it with an unhappy, complaining mind, or we can do it with a happy mind. We still have to do the action. Okay, so it's our choice. Am I going to be miserable doing it, or am I going to be happy doing it? Okay, that's kind of like the, the uh, changing room song that we, we did yesterday, you're going to have to change your room anyway. So you, you can fetch and complain and be miserable and make everybody else miserable. Or you can just, you know, have a good time moving your stuff. Yeah, the action is the same. It's the mind that makes it pleasant or unpleasant, virtuous or not virtuous. Okay, so, um, yeah, so in 68, it's really, we have to be mindful of our precepts, of our values, of the kind of person we want to be, yeah, so that those are clear in our mind. And then we use the introspective awareness to monitor our mind and say, am I acting according to you know, my values and my precepts and so on? Or am I just kind of, you know, being lazy and careless and sloughing things off and making excuses and blaming others? Okay. Then 69, if someone dropped a sword during a battle, they would immediately pick it up out of fear. Likewise, if I lose the weapon of mindfulness, I should quickly retrieve it being afraid of hell, okay? So, you know, personally speaking, the military examples don't really motivate me very much. The The actual meaning uh, means more to me, uh, yeah, because I just don't like anything having to do with weapons and military and stuff like that. So... Um, Okay, but I can understand, yeah, if you're fighting a battle and you drop your sword. Uh, actually, if you're doing a school shooting and you drop your AK-47, I think that's good. Don't pick it up again. Yeah. Here it says they should quickly pick it up. So this, you see, this is why I don't like these analogies. You know, you drop your, your rifle, good. Let it stay there. Let somebody take it away from you. Okay, but the analogy, the meaning is if we lose our mindfulness, if we, you know, stop thinking about our values, our precepts, the kind of person we want to be, the kind of energy we want to put into the world, you know, if we aren't mindful of that, then it's very easy to get careless because the self-centered thought, you know, we're very well familiar with it and it just springs up and it so easily takes over and runs the show, okay? So to, to be very careful, and this is where 
why the introspective awareness is so important. It's the part of the mind that monitors what are we thinking, what are we feeling, what are we saying, and what are we doing. Yeah, And if we find uh, some misbehavior, then correcting it. Yeah, bringing ourselves back to, uh, yeah, to what, how we want to be. Okay, verse 70, just as poison spreads throughout the body in dependence upon the circulation of blood. Likewise, if a disturbing conception finds an opportunity, unwholesomeness will permeate my mind. Okay, so I think we all understand the analogy. The blood distributes, you know, uh, well, not only nutrition, but also viruses and bacteria and everything else throughout the body. So, um, you know, if, if we... Uh, and so it amplifies, you know, whatever it's, is being distributed throughout the body. So in the same way, if a disturbing conception, if an affliction, you know, anger, resentment, jealousy, greed, whatever, you know, o- occupies our mind, even for a moment, yeah, it will spread very quickly and take over our whole mind. Okay, so have you n- ever noticed that something may happen that kind of annoys you? And so your mind is annoyed. And then you're in a little, you, that puts you in a little bit of a bad mood. As soon as you're in a little bit of a bad mood, what happens? You start thinking about all the other things that you're annoyed at. And then you start thinking about the people that you're mad at. And then you really go on to, you know, this is just horrible and I'm enraged and I've got to stop it. It just, ma- the whole thing magnifies, doesn't it? And it started out with one little thing, you know, you found a, a tick walking around the room who wasn't even harming you. Yeah. So you're annoyed. Okay, this is a tick. But then, you know, and we're furious. And somebody says, good morning, and we go, yeah, you know, we bite their head off. (laughs) Um, Okay, so to be really careful about when, when we let even a little bit of an affliction come into the mind, yeah, because it's, you know, we're so familiar with these things that they just take over, and especially, you know, the afflictions all come, you know, they're all, they're all connected with the self-centered mind. We don't get nearly as upset when something happens to somebody else. Yeah. And when somebody else is filled with greed and wants this and needs that, yeah, it doesn't bother us. All these things only disturb our mind because they're all about the center of the universe, which coincidentally is me, you know? And then the afflictions just take over. 
They run the whole mind. Yeah? And before we know it, we're mad at this one, we're irritated at that one, we're dissatisfied because of this thing, and we're enraged because of that thing, and then everything in our whole life is awful. Yeah? And where's it all coming from? Coming from us. World is just doing its thing. Yeah? All these afflictive emotions are coming, are in us. You know? And remember our big red buttons that say, don't push, that are so sensitive that even if somebody doesn't push them but walks by them, the alarms start ringing. Yeah? And so we just get so sensitive about everything. And no wonder we're exhausted. Yeah? Yeah? Are you, when, after you get irritated or angry, yeah? Are you exhausted? Yeah? I don't know about you, but I am. I like, you know, my energy's gone. Yeah. So what's the use of, you know, letting dissatisfaction and craving and these kinds of things run our mind if it only results in us being unhappy and exhausted? Yeah? Doesn't make any sense, does it? But uh, who ever expected sentient beings to be reasonable and make sense? Yeah? That's one thing I think we have to get over, you know, assuming that people are going to be rational and reasonable. Because if we look at our own mind, we are not always rational and reasonable, are we? Yeah? Sometimes it's interesting to think, what if I were another person and I had to work with myself? (laughs) What would that be like? Yeah? What would that be like? Working with somebody, you know, working with myself and having to deal with this person's ups and downs and likes and dislikes and complaints and projections and unreasonableness and demands and, you know, betrayals and everything else. It might be interesting to have to work with ourselves sometime. Huh? Yeah. Interesting or uh, exasperating? I don't know. Okay. Okay, then 71. Those who practice should be as attentive as a frightened man carrying a jar full of mustard oil who is being threatened by someone with a sword and told he will be killed if he spills just one drop. So I, I don't quite understand why must, it's mustard oil. Do you? Is mustard oil something very precious in India? Why are they specifying mustard oil? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. 
Yeah. Anyway, okay. So somebody's trying to uh, to carry something, and you know somebody's behind them with a sword. Uh, who's going to kill them if they spill one drop? So I guess you pretend you are in the court of Mary, Queen of Scots, or somebody like that. Or who was the, the British monarch who was so violent? Or take Ivan the Terrible. Yeah? Or take Putin. Um, <laughs> you know? And so you're terrified. Yeah. If that analogy doesn't work for you, think of what scares you. Okay? So I remember as a kid, Certain things I knew if I did, I would get it. And I mean, get it. And so I was terrified of even doing certain things because I knew I would be in big trouble. Okay? So, oh, so that's what this means. You know, now, of course, as a kid, you're, you're terrified in this panicky, anxious, fearful way. That's not what we want to get into as Dharma practitioners. But the the purpose of this verse is talking about being attentive, not about being terrified, okay? But if there's something, you know, where uh, where there's danger involved, we want to be attentive so that we don't you know, create a mess or get hurt or whatever. So similarly, you know, when we're uh, going about our life and doing our practice, um, and our practice doesn't mean just sitting on the cushion. It's everything we do in our whole life is our spiritual practice. Then to have that same kind of attentiveness that, uh, you know, isn't afraid and terrified, but is attentive and doesn't want to mess things up, okay? Um, because we care and we want to do a good job and we want to have a kind motivation and so on, okay? So the verse is reminding us to, to be careful, yeah, to be conscientious, to not just, um, you know, shine things on and be careless and, Oh, it's a small thing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah. Because just like the preceding one about how, you know, if you get an inf- one bacteria in your blood, it's going to spread throughout your whole body. In the same way, you know, if we start making excuses for our own behavior, then what started out as one small thing uh, can quickly become enormous. Okay. So to give you some examples of that, um, this things that I've heard throughout the years, uh, of people coming to the Dharma, uh, taking the five lay precepts, being really intent on, on keeping them. And then, uh, coming back after some time and saying, well, you know, I, w- I was with some of my old friends, you know, my, my drinking buddies, my drugging buddies, the, my buddies that I used to go to the movies with and so on. And 
uh, you know, they, they were all drinking. And I, at first I said, no, I don't want anything. And then they started teasing me. Oh, so you're a Buddhist. You're really prudish now. So then I thought, oh, then they're putting Buddhism down. You know, my not wanting to drink with them uh, is making them create the negative karma of disrespecting the Dharma, and it's distancing them from the Dharma. They're, they aren't interested in it anymore because they think that the Dharma just makes you a prude. So in order to, to you know, communicate with my old friends better because I really want to bring them into the Dharma, then I'm going to have a little something to drink with them. I'll be one of the buddies like I used to be. And it's just a little bit. I won't get drunk or anything. And uh, this way it'll soften the situation and, and bring make my friends interested in the Dharma because we'll spend time together and I can tell them about what I'm learning in the Dharma classes. Yeah? Sounds good? Sounds like a reasonable read? No? Doesn't sound reasonable? Oh, but so many people think it sounds quite reasonable. And also it's for the benefit of the other person so they don't create the negative karma of disrespecting the Dharma. Yeah? So we should be flexible. And we always hear about skillful means. Shouldn't we be skillful? Isn't that skillful? Yeah, I mean, I'm giving up my Manischewitz uh, grape juice, and I'm just having a little bit of alcohol. But, you know, it looks the same as Manischewitz grape juice, but, well, actually, it's Manischewitz wine. But, uh, yeah, and it's some other brand that makes the grape juice. But uh, never mind. Um, you know, I'm doing this for the benefit of sentient beings. And then what happens after that? Yeah, you have many uh, imprints, old habit of drinking, and then you want to drink some more. You want to drink some more, and then pretty soon you're, you know, drunk or whatever. And uh, yeah, this whole thing of of. Uh, of our relationship with our old friends is extremely important because we can so easily lose our mindfulness and our introspective awareness in those situations. Okay. And also to be aware of putting ourselves in situations where we already have a lot of habit of acting in not such good ways. Okay, so, um, you know, we, we've seen it happen. People come here and they get clean. They may be, uh, I can think of a, two people offhand without even thinking about it, who come here, they're clean when they're here, no drugs, you know, no alcohol. They're doing great in the community, you know, and then they go back uh home and they're with their old friends and they go right back to the same old behavior which they don't want to do but because it's so habitual they do it okay so uh 
you know, this is where we really need attentiveness to stay focused on discerning what's virtue, what's not virtue. Okay. Okay, so that leads into 72. Just as I would swiftly stand up if a snake came into my lap. We have some people here from uh, Florida. How about if we choose an alligator came into my lap? Okay, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I saw a, a picture of an alligator swimming in somebody's swimming pool. Yeah, I mean, they just seem to go, like, wherever the, they want to, huh? So, okay. So just as I would swiftly stand up, if a snake came into my lap, or if an alligator, uh, you know, came into my house, let alone my lap, yeah. Likewise, if any sleep or laziness occurs, I shall quickly turn it back. Okay, so uh, we already went through uh, the three kinds of laziness at the beginning of this chapter. So if they start coming up and occupying our mind again, then we should recognize them and remember the antidotes. So what was the first kind of laziness? Lazing around, sleeping. Yeah, okay. So lazing around, sleeping, procrastinating. Okay. We don't do this. We just haven't gotten around to doing our chores or or getting around to doing whatever our offering service job was uh, because there were many more important things that that came up. Yeah, really important things. Mm. Okay, then the second one, what's the second laziness? Yeah, being very busy doing samsaric things. Okay, so we create a lot of work for ourselves. We want to have our nose in everything. So we're running to this, and we're running to that, and we're sniffing everything out, and we're getting engaged in everything because we want to have a say-so in it, and we want to feel in that the situation is controlled. Yeah, because if I don't know everything that's going on, it could be dangerous. Yeah, so I'm going to know whatever is going on, and I'm going to get involved in it in one way or another and monitor it. Yeah? Because otherwise, I feel really insecure. Hmm? Okay, so we keep ourselves very busy. Very busy doing all sorts of worldly things. I have a friend who um, built her a retreat house in India. It was really quite a nice retreat house. You know, it wasn't just a kuti. It was, you know, she had a kitchen and a living room, her meditation room, a very nice place, okay? And she had it built. And then she was going to go in and do long retreat. 
So she started out doing long retreat. And before you know it, she was going up and down to the visa office uh, to help everybody else at the Dharma Center extend their visas. Yeah, so she had to go to the visa office. So she took everybody else's, and then different people had problems with their visas. So she went back again and again and again. So you can imagine what happened to her retreat. Yeah. So this is so easy to happen. Yeah. And, and you know, we want to know everything that's going on and put our two cents in everything. Okay. 73. Each time something unwholesome occurs... I should criticize myself and then contemplate for a long time that I shall never let this happen again. Okay, so we have to be a little bit careful here about the words. Okay. Each time something unwholesome occurs, each time I break precepts, I speak in a way that I don't want to speak, I do something that uh, is unbecoming, or I'm rude and inconsiderate of other people, or, you know, who knows what kind of thing I do. Okay, I should criticize myself. Okay, now knowing our tendency to criticize ourselves and create a big thing out of something that isn't so big, yeah, I think it, it doesn't mean I should criticize myself like, what a bad practitioner I am. I just blew it again. It means that we, uh, we are unhappy about our misdeeds. We're unhappy about our, our um, you know, bad behavior. It doesn't mean we sit there and, you know, tell ourselves off with this, you know, the waving finger, oh, you're so bad, da 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 yeah, it just means we're unhappy. It's like, oh, I aspired to do something else and I kind of blew it. Yeah. And so then to, to uh, fortify our intention, then we contemplate for a long time. If we were in that situation again, how could we think so that we would act differently and not just do the same stupid thing again, okay? And so this is the whole thing in, in our meditations, to take out real live situations that we have experienced already or that we can see ourselves, we can find ourselves in maybe sometimes in the future, and thinking, how shall I think in that situation so that I, you know, don't go against everything I value, so that I don't uh, create a mess for myself and other people, so that I don't break my precepts, okay? And, and so that kind of role play in our meditation is very, very helpful, you know, especially if you think you're going to meet somebody who you don't get along with real well, before you, you meet them, think in your mind, you know, 
okay, well, usually when I meet them, it kind of turns out like this. What are my buttons that, that this person pushes, you know, that get pushed when I'm with this person? You know, oh, I become jealous because I'm competing with them. That's one of the big things that we, why we don't get along. Okay, so let's do some meditation about jealousy. You know, what is it about that person that I'm jealous of? Well, they do such and such a, a thing that is really good, you know, really well. They do it better than I do. And then practice thinking, well, that's good. I'm glad somebody's better than I am. Because if I were the best, we're in bad shape. Yeah. And if somebody's better than me, it also means that I can learn from them. And that's good. At least some, there's somebody I can learn from. And this person being better than me in this one particular area doesn't mean I'm a failure in every other part of my life. There's other things that I do well, yeah, and I can rejoice in those talents and those abilities. And this one, somebody's better, and like I said, rejoice. It's so nice that somebody's better. Really. I mean, I just look, I guess I've told you many times, I don't, all I know about electricity is turning the light switch and changing the bulb. Okay, but you also have to show me which bulb it is because I can't always figure out, especially with the neon things, you know, downstairs in the, in the storage room, those go out. Do I try and figure out what kind of uh, bulb to go in? No, I make an announcement so somebody else can do that because I am likely to put in the wrong kind of bulb, you know, and or put it in the wrong way or something like that. So, yeah, I'm really glad people know more than I do about many things. Yeah. I mean, that's how we function as a society, is we all contribute something. So that person contributes this, I have another thing that is my strong point. I can I contribute that. Yeah. And anyway, we are not in a race to uh, to get to awakening. You know, I'm. You know, here's this other Dharma student. We're always in the same classes, but they understand the Dharma better than me. They're going to get enlightened before I do. They can sit in meditation without moving at all, and I can't and I'm fidgeting, and they're going to already be at the path of seeing, and I'm still moving my legs. Yeah, and what's going to happen? Oh, this is terrible, you know, I'm such a failure. And Well, you know, they're better good. Yeah, do you, do you think that when they get enlightened that there's going to be a big announcement in the world? You know, like, you know, now it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, yeah? And they're, the Brits are doing all sorts of, you know, things, marches and coloring the troops or um, all sorts of things that cost tons of money that are involved with history and pomp and, pomp and circumstance, yeah? Um, 
and they're doing all of that. So do you think when that, if that person gets enlightened before I do, that they're going to have that whole big thing in, in, in London, you know, with a parade and they're going to be in the front of the parade because they got enlightened before me? Yeah. Am I jealous because I want the parade to be about me? I want everybody around me wearing those big bearskin caps. Can you imagine? I mean, those poor bears, just so they can get their big fancy hats. Yeah, to wear in the hot weather. Yeah. So I want the parade to be out about me. Yeah, I want to stand on the balcony and look over everybody who's adoring me because I got enlightened first before that guy. I mean, this this is what I do. In your meditation, make take what you're feeling and bring it, make it into some ridiculous scene like that. Because that's exactly what jealousy does. It's completely unreasonable. So you make a buffoon, yeah, out of yourself. Yeah, and then you can laugh at what's going on in your mind instead of, oh, I'm so bad, you know, I had that. I met at one of our monastic gatherings. There was one uh, young Theravada monk who asked to speak to me, and so we were talking, and he said, uh, you know, it, he had just been, he wasn't ordained very long, and he said, you know, I really don't keep my precepts very well, and I imagine the Buddha looking at me and saying, and scolding me, and saying, you know, what kind of monk are you? You took precepts and you're acting like that. And I imagine the Buddha scolding me like that, and I, you know, and... <laughs> So I don't feel, you know, I feel a little bit depressed, I disheartened, you know. I said to him, do you think the Buddha's going to scold you? Yeah? That the Buddha's going to look at you and point that finger and say, oh, what a terrible monk you are. I said, no, the Buddha's full of compassion. He knows that we have ideals and that sometimes we aren't able to meet them. The Buddha understands that, and what he wants us to do is renew our joyous effort and keep trying, you know, and slowly, slowly we'll do that. But the Buddha's never going to tell you off. Yeah. I, I, after I talked with him, I felt so sad, you know, because going through your your ordination, imagining the the Buddha as some, you know, big, tough, authoritarian fixture who's going to, you know, tear you apart. That's, that's not how I think of the Buddha, <laughs> and I don't think it's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we have a sense of disappointing ourselves because of our bad behavior and wanting to do better and then thinking of how I can uh, act differently if that situation comes again, that's useful, yeah? But getting into some harsh thing like that is 
not very useful. Okay, so that was 73. 74. Likewise, in all these situations, I shall acquaint myself with mindfulness. So with this motivation as a cause, yeah, I shall aspire to meet with teachers or accomplish the tasks they assign me. Okay? So having, uh, you know, just as a daily reminder, you know, I, that I will acquaint myself with mindfulness or especially in a situation where I kind of blew it I'm, rest- I'm confessing, I'm restoring. So then you say, likewise, in all these situations, I shall acquaint my mind- myself with mindfulness. So you're renewing your motivation. With this motivation as a cause, I shall aspire to meet with teachers or accomplish the tasks they assign me. Okay, so in the pre- in 73... Something unwholesome occurred. Now we are returning to our main motivation. And uh, what is going to help us in these situations where we feel lost, when we feel, you know, uh, that we're not living up to our own expectations in some way? Uh, so one way is to meet with the teacher yeah, and and explain the situation to our teacher. And our teachers can usually give us some reasonable feedback because often, you know, when we get depressed or discouraged, um, our expectations are too high. We're not we're not understanding something correctly. So it's helpful to to talk with our spiritual mentors. Yeah, so we aspire to meet with them or accomplish the tasks they assign us, okay? So when our teachers give us tasks to do, very often it's because they they know that doing that task will help our mind, okay? So I told you the story about Lama Zopa getting me to paint the all the little... Uh, uh, lines of the uh, of the rainbow uh, halo around the thirty five Buddhas on a picture that was this big, you know, and like, yeah. So if if I, you know, he asked me to do that, I figured it was you know he wanted the picture and I wanted to do something for him, so that was fine, but. By following his instructions, what happened is I became very interested in that practice. And when I returned the picture, I said, please, you know, tell me how to do this practice. I want to do it. Okay. So I think that was his way of getting me to do the practice. So, you know, very often when we... uh, uh, do tasks that that our teacher asks us. The process of doing them is uh, something that will benefit us. Okay, it may be hard. You know, sometimes our teachers ask us to do things that are very difficult, and our mind goes, ah. but 
if we do it, we learn so much and we really come out, uh, you know, far ahead than if we had just followed our own whims. Mm-hmm. Okay, then 75. In order to have strength for everything, I should recall before undertaking any action the advice in the chapter on conscientiousness and then joyfully rise to the task. So you'll remember we uh, did the chapter on conscientiousness before, which uh, talked a lot about how to behave in different situations. Okay, so to review that, to remember that in our mind, you know, how to take care of our our body, speech, and mind in different situations, Uh, and then, you know, recall that, and then have the conscientiousness, which is a mind that cares about virtue, a mind that aspires to to do what is wholesome, yeah, what is constructive. And uh, so by remembering that mind, then joyfully uh, engage in whatever task we have. Yeah, instead of, oh, not again. Yeah. How many times do we greet the day with, you know, oh, first thing in the morning, the cat threw up. (laughs) Yeah. I got to clean up cat poop, you know, throw up before I've even started the day. You know, just, it's our mind that makes this, that greets the day like that. Yeah. We don't have to do it. We could do zippity doo da. I get to clean up the cat's vomit. <laughs> you know, actually, you don't need to be that happy about it. <laughs> but, you know, but when you think, I'm cleaning this up and the other people around here will benefit from it. Yeah. So even you're not cleaning up the cat stuff, if you clean your own room, if you tidy up your own office, there's some people who need to do that. Yeah. And you, you know, you tidy up your own stuff, then a lot of people benefit and your own mind is clear. Okay. So regarding your office, yeah, my practice is at the end of the day, everything gets put away. Yeah. And then I have my list for tomorrow. That's still there, but everything else gets put away. So in the morning when I sit down at my desk, it's empty, except for all the cat fur. (laughs) Okay. But I sit down at a clear desk, and then I think, what am I going to do today? And, you know, I have the priorities, and I get to do it. It's much easier working with a clear desk than it is with a desk piled high with all sorts of stuff that you don't need to look at then. Yeah, that basically makes you, you know, when our environment is cluttered, our mind feels cluttered. 
you know, and how we keep our environment, I think, tells us something, too, about our mind. I, I was living in, in one temple uh, in Singapore, and there was one nun there who was always, like, very meticulous in all the different tasks that she did. And um, she was kind of helping me because I was new there, and, you know, I had to do all these things. And one day she showed me her room, yeah, the outside of her room, completely clean. Yeah. She opened some cabinets stuffed with stuff. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Everything looks very tidy, but inside, completely, everything was folded, but it was stuffed. Mm, interesting. Okay. You learn many things about people if you observe. Yeah. Okay. Then, 76. Just as the wind blowing back and forth controls the movement of a piece of cotton, so shall I be controlled by joy and in this way accomplish everything. Usually, when wind appears in an analogy, it's the wind of karma that blows us around, you know, uh, helplessly. Here, it's the wind that blows a piece of cotton. Yeah. And the piece of cotton is quite happy to just be blown around. They're flexible. They adapt to different situations. They're blown here and they're blown there. And the cotton is okay with it all. They're not, you know, hey, you know, I, you're blowing me to the east. I want to get blown to the west. You know, they just enjoy. So, in the same way, yeah, um, let our mind enjoy whatever is happening in our life and let that joy be what controls us instead of letting the... Uh, Ignorance, anger, and attachment control us. Yeah, let joy control us. And in this way, we can accomplish everything. Because when the mind is happy, you know, then it's easy to do what needs to be done. So there's a, um, a verse by Maitri Seta who, that pertains to this, I think is quite nice. It says, the sublime state, difficult to gain, is not attained without hardship. Hence, intensify your joyous effort without concern for yourself. Okay? So the sublime state, difficult to attain, clearly Buddhahood, yeah? And it's not attained without hardship. In other words... We don't, we're not going to become a Buddha without stretching ourselves. When we often think stretching ourselves is hardship. Yeah. But if we have it in our mind, you know, I have to stretch my mind. I have to be more open-minded. I have to be, you know, I need to be more relaxed about things. I need to, uh, yeah not be so partial 
or not be so picky or you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So because we're, yeah, we have to stretch our mind to, to overcome the afflictions instead of remaining ossified in our habitual uh, emotional patterns. Okay. So there's hardship in doing that. Yeah, because we're getting stretched like a piece of elastic. I'm like, you know, I want to go back. You know, you're telling me to stop lying. No, I like to make big stories and rationalize everything I do. Yeah. Okay. So how to work with that? Hence, you know, here he's actually talking to the Buddha. So he says, hence, you intensified your joyous effort. So this is how the Buddha overcame his obstacles. Yeah, hence you intensified your joyous effort without concern for yourself. So without concern for yourself means without the self-centered thought. Clearly the Buddha was concerned about practicing the path. He was concerned about, you know, becoming a Buddha. Okay, but the, the self-centered thought was absent. So that kind of concern about, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, w- I was in China one time. We were on pilgrimage and there's one woman there and, and uh, a rat ran across in front of her and she went ah! and started screaming yeah <laughs> and, and I thought you know, it's just a rat and the rat was probably more scared than she was because it was the rat that ran away from her <laughs> okay so you know how we uh, you know get af- afraid and, and just like you know, just to, well, let's try, let's stretch my mind a little bit, see what happens. Okay. Okay, then, let's remove this. Um, one of the commentaries on Bodhicharya Vatara has a very nice summary at the end of it that I thought I would read to you. So it's a very, it's a short commentary. It's not Gelts of Jay's commentary, which is quite lengthy. It's a shorter one. So he says, uh, make effort to dispel the adverse conditions to joyous effort and to generate the four powers that are the conducive conditions. Okay. What are the four powers for joyous effort? Aspiration. Aspiration. Steadfastness. Steadfastness. Joy. Rest relinquishment. Okay. So to remember those. Okay. And then he spells out here some adverse conditions. So uh, he lists two. For the first one is non-engagement in virtuous dharma, despite seeing that one has the ability to accomplish it. Yeah. Oh, I'd much rather go to the beach today. 
okay? And two, discouragement thinking, how can I do it? Okay, the first one, non-engagement and virtuous dharma, is of two types. So the first type is procrastination that thinks, I still have time. Yeah, death is not coming anytime soon. And the second uh, is being overwhelmed by attachment to negative actions. Okay, so those were the, the first two remedies to the first kind, uh, actually to the first two kinds of attach of laziness, which he put just in the first one here. Yeah. So uh, the first, the one he, in the thing of being overwhelmed by attachment to negative activity. No, I'm sorry. Procrastination that thinks I still have time. Yeah, the antidote to that, it should be abandoned with its antidote, contemplating one, that the body has been obtained, uh, the body that has been obtained will quickly disintegrate. In other words, our body's changing all the time. Two, and after dying, yeah, there I could fall into a bad migration. And three, that the freedoms and fortunes of a precious human life are difficult to attain. So those three are counter the procrastination that thinks, I still have time. Because it shows we don't have time. Okay. Then the second, which was being overwhelmed by attachment to negative actions, yeah, that should be abandoned with its antidote, contemplating, one, that the sacred dharma is the cause of infinite joy in this and future lives. Okay, so this is, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, the sacred dharma is the cause of infinite joy in this and future lives. And two, distractions such as meaningless chatter degenerate the great purpose in this life. And three, they are the sources that will generate much suffering in future lives. Okay, so this is applying to being overwhelmed by attachment to negative actions. So in that respect, yeah, abandon that with the antidotes thinking that the holy dharma is the cause of infinite joy in this and future lives. Distractions such as meaningless chatter generate degenerate the great purpose in this life. Meaningless chatter, we don't do any of that, do we? Yeah. When we're offering service, we are focused on the task. We don't chit-chat. None of that. We don't gossip. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what so-and-so said? But we don't do that. Um, and then third, uh, they are the sources that uh, will degenerate much suffering in future, de- which will generate much suffering in future lives. So this attachment to uh, harmful actions will generate that suffering. Okay. Then 
going back to the top outline, the second one of discouragement that thinks, how shall I do that? Okay, it is of three types. Okay, so the first one here is the discouragement thinking. Since the objects to be attained, the excellent qualities of the Buddha are infinite, I cannot attain them. So this is the thing of the goal is too high. Yeah. I mean, it's just all these excellent qualities are infinite. How can I, I just, it's too high. I can't do it. Okay. The second is the discouragement thinking. I cannot accomplish the innumerable difficult deeds, such as giving my hands and legs away. You know, so immediately the mind going to the most difficult of bodhisattva practices, you know, giving up our body for, for some reason. So um, that, that makes us discouraged. So that's the one if the path is too hard. First one, the goal's too hard. Goal's too high. Second, the path is too hard. Then the third kind of discouragement is thinking, since I must take infinite rebirths in cyclic existence, at that time I cannot bear the sufferings of cyclic existence. Yeah. In other words, I can't do anything. You know, this is all above my head. I can't bear the sufferings of cyclic existence, but I'm going to be caught in infinite rebirth. And so there's nothing to do. Okay? So that's the discouragement of I'm incapable. Mm -hmm. So the antidote to that. Okay, so an antidote to the second one uh, that that thinks that the path is too hard, you know, I, I just can't give my body away, you know, goes, you go to the hardest thing, yeah. So an antidote to, to that is to think, as long as I generate the discrimination that giving my body and the like is different, difficult to perform, I will not give them away. When I give them away, similar to the giving of vegetables and the like, it will not be difficult. So remember, we talked about, you know, don't go to the most difficult thing at the beginning. Start with something easy. Yeah. So give somebody a banana. Give somebody a cookie. You know, just start with, with something that is easy so that you get used to doing the action. And then as you get used to doing something virtuous, then you can up it a little bit. And in the practice of generosity, for example, give something that's a little bit more difficult to give. And then you can, when you're familiar with that, then you can up it again and, you know, like that. It's like going through, through school, yeah? And each grade, whatever, I mean, we study most of the same subjects all through school, but we start out on the really simple letter, level, and then with each grade we learn a little bit more about and something that is a little bit more difficult. So it's like that. Okay, and then the antidote to the third, the third was 
uh, thinking I'm in, I'm incapable. You know, I can't do this. Um, the, that antidote is bodhisattvas have abandoned negativities, whereby sufferings that are the results of negativities will not arise. Due to the realization that the sufferings of cyclic existence lack inherent existence and are like illusions, there is no suffering in their mind. When the happiness of the body and mind are developed, even though they stay in cyclic existence, there is nothing to be disheartened about. Okay? So instead of thinking, oh, it's all too hard, I can't do it, you know, again, thinking that we will progress gradually, yeah, and, uh, and here calling in wisdom, because if we think that the, the sufferings of cyclic existence uh, are empty of inherent existence, you know, that the person who's experiencing them is not an independently existent person, that gives us a little bit of breathing room, okay? And so that's why they say that due to uh, a bodhisattva's collection of merit, they don't experience physical suffering, and due to their collection of wisdom, they don't uh, experience mental suffering. So if we remember that, and then we know that we can, uh, you know, progress in the collective uh, collections of merit and wisdom, then we see, yes, gradually our own mental and physical suffering will decline, and then that makes it so much easier to do all the things that seem difficult to us now, okay? So he says, thus abandon discouragement. And hence, reflecting on the drawbacks of laziness and the benefits of joyous effort through various means, I should make effort to undertake joyous effort. <laughs> okay. And then Tsongkhapa said, it's a quote from Tsongkhapa, may I completely abandon the three types of laziness that cause the decline of the attainment of the wholesome qualities not yet attained, and prevent the increase more and more of those already attained, and undertake joyous effort. So that's from his Prayer of the Virtuous Beginning, Middle, and End. Okay. And Gyalsabjay said, Since the initial embarking and the culmination of that embarked upon are contingent upon undertaking joyous effort with endeavor, those who seek complete liberation and are diligent in the accomplishments should generate the joyous effort complete in the four powers. Very succinct verses that, you know, now we've had the whole teaching on the chapter, then the, the short verses can help us remember the important points. And then uh, here's a quote from the fifth Dalai Lama. Understanding that there is no time left and that what, what the appearances of this life are like, without frittering away your time, wield the whip of striving in the sacred dharma that accomplishes everlasting happiness and definitely proceed to the island of liberation. Instead of wielding the whip, I would say, 
take the energy drink. Okay? Yeah, so take the energy drink of joyous effort, the sweet, delicious energy drink. Okay, not Gatorade. (laughs) But, you know, one of those, there's some very nice ones. Yeah, so take those and then be enthusiastic and practice the path. Okay, so any questions or comments? Missed what was the antidote for the first of the three difficulties, one about the goal being too high. Too high? Um, it was combined, I think, with the second one. Let me... The second one was the path. Was... Um, the, dip, the difficult path. Oh, actually, the, the one for the first one is thinking that the, um, the Buddha was once like us with the same... Uh, impediments, the same afflictions. And so as a sentient being, uh, by practicing the path, he attained the goal. So that's our situation now. So if we practice the path, we too can attain awakening. Okay. So we've finished the seventh chapter. I'm going to begin the eighth chapter. The eighth and ninth chapters are the doozies. Okay? So uh, be prepared. The eighth eighth chapter is technically about meditative concentration. But what he talks about first is a lot of the uh, distractions to generating serenity. And so we get a whole discussion there of objects of attachment, okay? And he doesn't, uh, uh, what is it, bear any holds? Is that, is that the expression? Yeah, he doesn't hold back, okay? And then um, chapter 9 is, uh, like, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> Yeah, but we'll make it through. Okay. So, um, good to to read ahead a bit. Yeah. Um, Because chapter eight really, yeah, typical uh, Shantideva style. He sucks it to us. Yeah. Okay. 